Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Da Vinci Code, like the most popular thing out right now. And like this book right now is printed in over 60 million copies are in existence today in over 44 languages around the world. The movie that recently came out, its opening weekend or day, brought in $29 million at the box office, second only to a first day opening to Star Wars 3 from last year. Uh, According to boxofficemojo.com, I'm sure most all of you go there, so you probably already know this. (laughs) May 25th, 2006, The Da Vinci Code grossed 102 million domestically, the third highest in 2006, and 255 million worldwide, third highest in 2006. According to Yahoo Movies, the film is currently ranked number one at the box office. Now, the problem with this book and the problem with this movie is that, number one, it's very popular. In fact, it's quite well written. It's a nice uh, novel. It's a good mystery. But there is a great controversy surrounding it, primarily because it's not only just a novel, but it makes this claim in the beginning, and I'll read to you. It says, fact, all descriptions of artwork and architecture, documents, and secret rituals in this novel are accurate, which always sends off a little a trip hammer in my mind whenever you say novel and accurate. The two really don't necessarily go together. But here's the plot. They've uncovered some ancient mystery. In fact, it's surrounding the Holy Grail. You guys remember any of those old movies uh, back in the day concerning the Knights of the uh, Round Table and King Arthur and this continual search for the Holy Grail. Supposedly, it was the chalice in which some of the blood from Jesus at his crucifixion was contained. So they had this constant search for it because in that would be found all the the truth that was needed and the power and ability to run a, a nation. Well, he's proposing in this book that the secret that everyone knew is that Mary Magdalene was the Holy Grail. Because secretly, she and Jesus got married, ran off to France, and bore this line of people who uh, the church tried to suppress it for years because they wanted to suppress the divine um, uh, feminine. Okay, I'm not finished. Hang in there. I'm still going. Well, remember Leonardo da Vinci? Well, they, they stated in this that he was a member of this secret society known as the Priory of Sion. You notice I had to look at my notes because all the previous services I said Sire of Priam, which is probably a new one that we can start afterwards, those who have read Da Vinci Code books. Well, anyway, it says that da Vinci was a part of this. And in his very famous painting, The Last Supper, it's very good art, but not necessarily that great theology. You sort of have all of the guys lined up on one side of the table posing for the photo or painting. Well, in that, the the person just the other side of Jesus um, is typically known as John the Apostle. Well... It is proposed by the author of this book, Dan Brown, that it is not 
John the Apostle, but actually Mary Magdalene. And if you look at the table, on the table there's no chalice, therefore implying that Leonardo knew that she was the real, the real grail holding the divine. In fact, on the cover of the book and everywhere you go, you see this famous little uh, glimpse of the Mona Lisa. It gets a little weirder. It says that um, the Mona Lisa was actually a feminine portrait of Leonardo da Vinci, which would explain a lot of the way that she looks. Anyway, um, I'm just saying it, okay? It's just us here, all right? It's actually stated that her name is is a is a anagram of two the names of two ancient Egyptian god and goddesses the the father god Ammon and the mother god Isis so you have Mona Lisa the sort of the combining of the two <sighs> What a story I mean if you believe that you know I've got some really rich well-watered land here in New Mexico to sell you <laughs> You know There has been a lot of response to this from the Christian community, and I think it's been very good. In fact, we have a bevy of books over in the bookstore that try to address some of the complicating issues of the Da Vinci Code. In fact, I have a really good one right here. It's by Josh McDowell. I would highly recommend it. But i got to let you know, I'm going to write my own book. I really, uh, I'm, I'm really thinking about it, and we're gonna. You can sign up in the foyer afterwards to pick up your uh, copy as soon as it's out. But uh, I wanted to write something a little simpler, so I'm gonna write the D U H, the Duh Vinci Code for dummies. Okay, that's the last time I have to tell that joke. In fact, I did this whole sermon just so that I could tell that joke. Not really. One thing I notice about all of this is that when we are unsure of the validity of the truth or a belief that we hold, our first reaction when challenged is fear and a harsh response. It creates in us an insecurity that manifests itself in conflict with those who disagree with us. Why? Because we do not know with real certainty what we believe. And that's why I wanted to preach on this sermon today. I want us to know exactly what we believe. You know, I read a um, survey recently, and they asked some Christians a few pointed questions. I'd like to read you the results. Beliefs about the Bible, 43% of those polled believe that it's totally accurate in all of its teachings. 53% believe that the Bible teaches that God helps those who help themselves. Uh, by the way, that's not in the Bible. That's, I think that came from Hallmark. I don't know. 31% polled believe that if a person is generally good or does good things and is good enough here on this earth, he will earn a place in heaven. Even though we may own many copies of this book, there is widespread ignorance about it. In fact, I heard a story of a, of a minister who had taken a new position at a church. And so he was getting to know all the various people in the fellowship. And uh, w- one of the Sunday school teachers for the junior high boys was unable to attend that day. And uh, he said, I'll be glad to teach the class. 
So he goes into the class and he thinks, you know, what I'll do is I'll see what kind of Bible knowledge these kids have. So he walked in and he said, boys, who tore down the walls of Jericho? Well, he was stunned because there was this long silence. And finally, one of the boys stood up and said, oh, I didn't do it. And another boy stood up and said, well, I didn't do it either. And finally, the rest of the class said, well, we don't know who did it. Well, he was appalled. He thought, what kind of teaching do they have in this church? So later on that week at the deacons meeting, he he brought it up before the board of elders and said, look, the Bible knowledge in this church is poor. We need to do something about it. I mean, an example is I asked the junior high boys who tore down the wall of Jericho and no one said they knew who did it. Again, a silence. Finally, one of the elders stood up and said, Look, preacher, I know all these young boys and I can vouch for their character. And if they said that they don't know who did it, I believe they don't know who did it. (laughs) However, we have a little extra money in our building fund. I think we ought to just take the money, go repair the wall and let bygones be bygones. I've titled this message, The Divine Code. Webster's Dictionary defines the divine as relating to or directly proceeding from God. It defines code as a systematic statement of body of law, a system of principles or rules. The Bible is a message from God. It is God's message, His communication to humanity. In fact, as Americans, I believe we believe that to a certain extent because we spend over $600 million a year in purchasing Bibles in this country. It has been the number one bestseller and still is. In fact, surveys show that if you go to an average home in America, you will probably find a Bible. Nine out of ten homes in America have a Bible in them. In fact, the research shows that when asked the question, what is the most influential book in world history? Four out of five people answer the Bible. Now, just because we own it doesn't mean we actually read it. And for instance, four out of five adults even read the Bible during the week when they're not at church. And that time that they spend in the Word is approximately one hour per week. We have a great message from the Lord. And that's why um, right now I'd like you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. As you're turning there, I'm going to read to you 1 Corinthians 4. He says, Let us so consider us, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Paul, in speaking about the scripture itself, in speaking about this great message from God, said, first of all, let me just tell you something. If you're going to consider us anything, you consider us as servants or household servants. Literally, the word in Greek means one who serves in a household. And this is what a steward does. He doesn't own anything. He's a servant to someone else. But he takes the master's goods and supplies and he uses them for the good of the household and gives an account to the master. Now, he tells us what the provisions are for us as stewards of this great word. He says we are stewards of the mysteries of God. Mysterion is the word. 
And in the Bible, when you hear the word mystery, it's not speaking of some deep coded issue that no one can understand. It's speaking of something that in times past was hidden. For instance, the whole process of how God would bring salvation to the whole world. He established a people group, the nation of Israel. He established a religion, prophecies. And then out of that came the Messiah who bore the sins of the world on the cross, thereby proclaiming the gospel to anyone. Anyone who would come and ask for forgiveness of their sins might be forgiven. It was revealed. And so now we have this mystery, this treasure, this supply given to us. And he says, moreover, it is required of servants that one be found faithful. And a faithful people must be an informed people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this short time that we have together to study your word, to focus on you, to worship you by giving honor to what you have said. Lord, we know that your words are so important and we need them desperately. So, Lord, strengthen our minds and our hearts so that we can not only receive knowledge, but the implanted truth that we might walk differently, we might talk differently. In Jesus' name, amen. Three little points we're going to cover this morning in 2 Timothy. First of all, we're going to cover the primacy of Scripture, the power of Scripture, and the product of Scripture. Look with me at verse 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. All right, the primacy of Scripture. Scripture has an intrinsic value as the world's most important writing due to the fact that it comes from God as its source. The phrase that is used here in Greek is pasagraphe theonoustos. And that is to say that all Scripture, all holy writing is God-breathed. And and it gives us the image all the way back to the garden. You'll remember that God had created the earth. He had created everything in it. And then He imagined or designed or created in His mind this one who would um, come and oversee this planet, this world. And He says that He took Adam... And he formed him out of the dust of the ground, the elements of the earth. And then it says something very unique. It says that he blew into Adam. He breathed on him. And it says that Adam became a living being at that point. Life came into him. He became a real person by the breath of God. And it's interesting that he uses this phrase, theanoustos. God breathed concerning Scripture. It's important, and this is the reason why. Every one of us in here is a product of the will of God in this sense, that mankind does not have the ability to create itself. God set all of this in motion. Yes, He gave mankind the ability to reproduce, but everything that we have here on this earth comes from God, and the very first human that existed 
existed because God breathed into him. And his word that he has, his Bible, his message to humanity comes from that same powerful, creative pneuma, this breath, this life that exudes from him. So does his word to this world. Because it is God-breathed and because it comes from God, it holds the highest place above any book in existence ever in the history of humanity. Why? Because it's God's word, period. All right, let's look at the process of revelation. How did this come to mankind? What I want you to do is take a little piece of paper or the ribbon in your Bible and keep it in 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to come back to it later, but we're going to camp for a while in 2 Peter chapter 1. We first notice that the folks who first received this revelation were eyewitnesses. Verse 16, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables, who we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. First thing we notice is that this was not some kind of thing that was concocted in the mind of man. It was given to real people who were eyewitnesses to the truth. Keep your finger here in Timothy, and you don't have to turn to First John. I'll just read it to you. 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, you have the words of Peter as an eyewitness, but also you have John as a life witness. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard and which we have seen with our eyes and looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you eternal life, which was, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Not only do you have eyewitnesses, but you have a life witness in this sense. The words that are used here, we have heard and we have seen, are in the perfect tense in the Greek. And this is what that means. That it happened at one point. That we, we, served, we saw him. We noticed him. But now the continuing result is that we are still believing. Not only I saw it, but the, the present result is that today I'm still believing because what happened. And he adds the phrase in there that we handled with our hands. We touched the word of truth. We were witnesses to this. Read on in verse 3. We have seen and heard and declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. This revelation not only is, is coming to someone in their mind, but it comes through a relationship, a real, vibrant relationship. Now imagine with me, if you will, just for a moment. Your boss comes into your office and says, All right, we're going to send you on vacation. We're only going to send you for three weeks. We're going to pay all your expenses and you can go anywhere you want. Imagine after you wake up, after fainting, you get on a plane and you travel over 2,000 miles and, and you find yourself at a table having dinner and you begin to converse with some of the local people around and, and you might begin to tell them stories of where you live and might tell them about one of your best friends. And so you go on and tell them what they're like and what you do. Imagine one of those people turning to you and saying, I don't believe you. 
You're a liar. You don't have friends. It's a myth. No one has friends. I don't have any friends and I have a great personality. No one has friends. Now, your immediate response is, oh, this guy's driving me crazy. How does he know? I mean, I've spent time with this person. I've conversed with him at meals. We've gone through hard times, good times together. We've cried together. This is my best friend. What right does he have to say anything against it? And that is their point exactly. Not only is just, this is not just some religious book where they sit around and say, let's come up with a new religion today. Okay, buddy. No. He says, we were eyewitnesses. We were life witnesses. We experienced this. And not only were they eyewitnesses and life witnesses, but they were light witnesses. Look with me at Second Peter 1 verse 19. You're glad you kept your finger there now, aren't you? Illumination. And we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light shining in a dark place. The word there for a dark place means a very dark, swampy area. He said this light, this illumination, this wisdom, this understanding came first of all from God as a light shining in a very dark place. Okay, keep your finger here in 2 Peter and look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This is fun, isn't it? It's sort of like the Da Vinci Code. You've got to go through all the various places. It's not. It's the divine code. Okay. Verse 6. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. There's that word again, mysterion. The hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would have, been, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I has not seen, nor hear, heard, nor entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. And here we go, verse 10. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit, For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that we have been freely given to us by God. There it is. Illumination. There is a sense that the Spirit of God coming upon us lights up the room. It's as if we're living in a dark place and Jesus walks in and turns on the light. Click. Wow, I can see. It takes the Spirit of God to illuminate a person's mind and heart to see, to come alive. In that same sense, as a person is born again, that breath of God, that Spirit of God is blown into their life and they're born of the things of God and now they know how to observe it. Now, this does not negate the fact or the truth that this is based in reality. It's not as if to say, well... Look, we don't know that much about the Bible, but you just need to receive it and just move on. Wait a minute. We have more archaeological evidence, 
more historical evidence, more theological evidence. We have so much in our account when it comes to the truth and the validity of this word. But I'll tell you, it's not enough. Because it's been well said in the past that if I can talk a person into believing in God, there will be someone better than me who can come along and talk that person out of believing in God. It takes more. Yes, it's founded in truth, but it takes the sovereign act of God to reveal that truth. And this, in verse 13, shows that quite well. These things we also speak not in words of man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolish to him, nor can they know them because they are spiritually discerned. It says it clearly right there. I know some of you are very discouraged with family members. Well, you know, I buy my Bible all the time. And every time I go over the house, I have to dust it off and say, have you read it yet? No, but I've been thinking about it. Or you have the writing of the Da Vinci Code. And you think, well, it's blasphemous. How can anybody say that about Jesus and Mary Magdalene? Well, don't get so upset. If a person hasn't been born of the Spirit of God, how will they appreciate the things of God? It's your opportunity, it's my opportunity to share the hope that God has for a lost and hurting world. All right, you ready to go back to 2 Peter? I'm glad you kept your finger there. 2 Peter verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 21. Here's the process of inspiration. For the prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The word there for moved is Pharaoh, and it means to be brought or drawn along. And the old theologians put it best when they said that the prophets and the teachers in the New Testament and the Old Testament set their sails... But it was the Spirit of God that blew and filled those cells and sails and began to move them along as God desired. The process of inspiration that came along was not some guy walking along, Zzz. what is that? Zzz. Oh, I think I have a message coming in. Quick, somebody give me a quill. I got to write this down. It wasn't that at all. These were real, honest, normal people like you and I who were disposed to the Spirit of God, who were open to Him, and then God choosing them, moved them along very gently and spoke the words He wanted humanity to know exactly. Exactly. Listen, if God can make the heavens and the earth, He can give a message to people just fine. All right, we looked at the primacy of Scripture. Let's look at the power of Scripture. Back to 2 Timothy chapter. Scripture carries the promise and power to change individuals because it possesses the authority of God himself. Notice what it says. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. It says that it's profitable. That is, it has the authority and the ability to make changes in the human. 
I know for a fact that most people are not satisfied with themselves. The reason I know that is most of you today didn't just get out of bed, roll out of bed, and just come to church the way you are. You thought, you stopped by the mirror and you went, well, i got a little work. We might be a little late today. <laughs> Self-help books. We go to the newest guru or, or the, the newest uh, counselor that comes along the way. We, we understand that there's a need for change in us. Even as Christians, we're not completely satisfied with who we are. But this gives us the power to change Because God recognizes that we need to continually grow in our process of of maturation as a Christian. All right. The word here that is used first off for doctrine is didaskalia. And it means teaching. Now, there are a lot of teachings in the world. But when it's speaking about this teaching in particular, he's saying that the teaching, it's good for teaching, it stands as the highest, the greatest, and the most authoritative source of teaching in the world, period. You can read a lot of stuff in the newspaper, in magazines. You can buy a lot of books that have good ideas. But the bottom line is the proclamation and the claim that is made here in Scripture is that this teaching is the one that stands above all the rest. And all the rest are judged according to this. Authority. Finality. It's not only good for doctrine, but for reproof. The word here that is used for reproof could other be translated as conviction. I don't know about you guys, but how many of you read the Bible so often? Everybody raise your hand. This makes you look good. I'd hate to think, you know, come on, you're in church. Anyway, you're reading it right now, so you're actually doing it. Well, when I read sometimes, I am surprised at how convicted I become. It may just be in the morning drinking coffee, sort of just a nice devotion, and then all of a sudden, like arrows to the heart, and you're, oh, wow, Lord, is that really me? Do I really need to change? Are you serious? And it, and it convicts me in my heart that, oh, there's more work to do. I need to change. I need to repent right now. It's profitable for reproof. Why do we need reproof? Because we continually mess up until we go home. We have, we, we sin, we make mistakes, and we become blind to our own sinfulness. Not only is it good for reproof, but for correction. You could translate this word restoration to an upright or a right state. I have a buddy who is a chiropractor. And you know, he spends all of his life straightening people's backs. And, you know, I know that some of you, if you have back problems, I sometimes myself, if I've slept wrong, you know, you kind of walk around like this. And my buddy will look at me and say, you think you need an adjustment? Oh, no, I'm fine. Are you in pain? Mm, a little bit. So how are you going to get out of it? I don't know. Well, you know, I'll sleep it off in the next couple of weeks or so. He looks at me like, what are you doing? The Word of God takes your spiritual spine, so to speak, and straightens it up so that you can walk upright and begin to head down the path that God called you to. It straightens us up so that we can walk straighter, live straighter. And then there's the word instruction. Instruction in righteousness 
takes us back to a word that is used for children. And so the, the idea behind this is very seminal, basic instruction in how to live a godly life. And I know some of you are thinking, Dave, man, you should have seen the home that I grew up in. It really wasn't that great. And we really didn't see that many examples of righteousness. Good news. It's all right here. God has provided it for you because he wants you to be able to live the life that he's called you to. All right. Let's look at the product of scripture. Verse 17. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The practical nature of Scripture produces godly character in the life of the believer. This phrase literally means completely fitted to complete. That is, when you go through these words, when you study this Bible, when you go through the process of being trained by God, it says the... the, The product, I'm tired, the product of this is a life that is fit, ready to go, ready to serve. You and I have to fulfill our calling. Every one of us in here has a calling by God. The question is, will you answer it? And if you answer it, will you take the next step and be trained and learn how to do it? So that whenever he says, hey, I want you to do do so-and-so, Boom, you're ready. You don't have to sit there and say, well, I, I, I don't, I. you can say, I read that passage the other day. I went to this class the other day. I know what to do. Yes, Lord, I'll go do it. Prepared for every good work. You know what kind of life that is? That's the life. Following God, listening to his words, doing his work in this world. Who could ask for anything more? Who could ask for anything more? Peace with God. That's what he offers. Okay, we'll wrap this up. One of my favorite teachers, and I know I keep bringing him up, is G. Campbell Morgan. He just he wrote so many good works. He was known as the Prince of Expositors. And uh, just one of the finest Bible teachers that ever lived. Well, he had a crisis early on in his ministry. He began to preach and take a few engagements. His father was a preacher. But he began to read books that were skeptical about the nature of Scripture. Is it real? Is it vital? And then he began to read other books that defended the faith. And it just became more confused and confused. In fact, quoting him, he said, I felt like I was walking in a trackless desert. So one day, he took all of his books. He placed them in the cupboard. And he said, I can remember that day so vivid in my mind. I can hear the turning of the key as I stepped outside of my door. And I head down the street and bought myself a brand new Bible. And this is what he said. I'm no longer sure that this is what my father claims it to be, the word of God. But of this I am sure. If it be the word of God, and if I come to it with an unprejudiced and open mind, it will bring assurance to my soul of itself. He said, that Bible found me. I began to read it and study it then in 1883, and he was a student until the end of his life.
God used the doubt of a man to build a giant of the faith. The reason I bring this up is because I know some of you, like me, have gone through periods where you think, Dave, I don't know if it's real. I mean, I come to church, I believe in God, but, you know, I watched this show on the History Channel the other night and I got freaked out. I read a new book and, and, you know, they're claiming that Jesus married Mary Magdalene and, and it says all the facts are true. What do I do? Ah, God is so much greater than any device of man. God is so much greater than anything that humanity can produce. And if, if you take anything away today, I pray you take this, this desire to search and to know and to dive into the depths, the depths of this book, because it comes from the very breath of life, God himself. Read with me in Psalm 119. I love the heart of this man. He loves God. And he loves his word. He says in verse 9, How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I may not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I have declared all the judgments of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.